This is Tom Koslick, the head of research and analytics at Hilltop Securities. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today for this episode of our Hilltop Talks Politics and Finance podcast. This is the beginning of the series for the new year in 2022. During these discussions with subject matter experts, we consider topics that intersect the areas of politics and finance at the federal, state, and local levels in the U.S. We often concentrate on issues related to U.S. public finance and the municipal bond market specifically. Today, we are going to revisit a topic that we discussed just a couple of months ago back in October, and that topic is something that is very important, and it's cybersecurity. The last time we had today's guest, we described the topic of cybersecurity as one that has developed into a new threat to municipal credit, and it was a topic that has risen to the top of the list of the issues that public finance management teams are starting to concern themselves with. So now, where we are to begin the month of February in 2022, we have thousands of Russian troops threatening the Ukrainian border. And I know that it is hard to get one's arms around everything that is happening right now, and I not just with that geopolitical situation in Russia and Ukraine, but the fact that COVID-19 is not necessarily close to being over, despite what many think. The Federal Reserve is trying to navigate a soft landing, but the near-term uncertainty is causing disruptions in the not just the financial markets, but uh, a higher level of uncertainty that we've seen in some time in the municipal bond market. Topics related to ESG and especially the E part are also intimidating the nature of you know just everyday life. And now this depending on how you describe it, a regional geopolitical standoff is threatening uh, parts of Europe and Asia and even US, the U.S. to a certain degree. With that, I'm going to reintroduce my guest, Omid Ramani. Omid is an associate director in Fitch's U.S. Public Finance Tax Supporter Group in Austin, Texas. He works on a team that covers local government issuers in Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Colorado, and Arizona. In addition, he also serves in the company-wide cyber risk team, which is within the company cross-sector ESG group. Prior to joining Fitch, Omid worked at another rating agency, and he is also an active archaeologist. Omid, thanks for coming back to talk with us on Hilltop Talks. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. It's good to be back. I want to jump right in because this is, and I thank you for uh, for setting, you know, being able to set this talk up so quickly because of all the things that have been happening over the last, say, week or so. One of the things that I've been really focused on is I'm trying to answer the question, uh, are we the closest that we have ever been to what could be described as a situation where cyber attacks could be used as a widespread geopolitical weapon? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Tom. I think uh, that's something a lot of people in in the infosec world are, are grappling with, and it certainly looks that way. Um, you know, in the cybersecurity world, there's been this discussion of cyber warfare or the use of cyber as a conventional weapon for some time, and some of those conversations start to look like um, science fiction. But today, uh, we're sitting at a crossroads where I think. Um, you know, very powerful nations in the world are really considering the use of cyber attacks as a conventional weapon 
to achieve geopolitical aims. And then we're seeing the uh, the outfall of that right now. So in a way, uh, yeah, I think we are uh, we are closer than we've ever been realistically to that point. It's uh, it, this is it's not the first time. I mean, we've had the use of cyber attacks as, as a weapon before it happened in 2014 because of similar geopolitical issues in Eastern Europe, as well as, um, you know, Stuxnet with the uh, with, uh, you know, the nuclear situation in the Middle East. So it's, it's not a novel situation. I think what makes uh, the current geopolitical climate a little bit different is the fact that it could be the widespread use of cyber as a weapon, as opposed to more surgical type of attacks. So over the last week or so, how is it that the U.S. federal government has been recognizing, uh, you know, what are the war, uh, this situation or what are the warnings that we've seen from the from the U.S. federal government? Yeah, so we've uh, we've in the past we've had uh, warnings from um, you know the FBI, but I think probably the most important warning that came out is actually from the Department of Homeland Security. That warning came out uh, about last week, and it specifically um, was uh, was directed at state and local governments, as well as operators of critical public infrastructure. That to me was a uh, was a real key statement. Now I've known for a long time, and I think folks in my industry have known for a long time that our geopolitical adversaries have recognized the fact that we might have some vulnerabilities when it comes to state and local governments. I think the last time uh, we spoke, I may have alluded to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing about it is our our federal system in the United States is fairly unique to the United States. Our adversaries don't necessarily recognize it to to them american government is american government it doesn't really matter as much whether it's local state or federal government obviously if they can hit federal assets that's better but local government is just as much fair game so we are in a situation uh realistically where like local officials could be held accountable for federal geopolitical decisions and they're finding themselves on the front lines of those kinds of issues so what kind of details were included? You said it was a Department of Homeland Security warning. Uh, a memo. Yeah, it, memo. It, was a, it was it was a memo that was specifically sent to um, to county level governments mm-hmm. and operators of critical public infrastructure. And it basically said that make sure you're prepared. They have reason to believe that if the situation, if the geopolitical situation continues to devolve. And this was about a week ago. So there's already mm-hmm. been some updates since then, uh, mm-hmm. but if the geopolitical situation continues to devolve, they could find themselves the target of cyber attacks resulting from that geopolitical situation. And I believe just a few days before that, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency issued a similar warning. It wasn't as direct as the Department of Homeland Security warning, but mm-hmm. nonetheless, it did warn that the possibility for cyber to be weaponized has increased uh, fairly significantly in the last few weeks and that institutions should begin to prepare themselves to defend against such attacks. So you and I have already just been talking about these things at a big picture, high level, conceptual. We, you, know, we, you, you and I both use the word weaponized. We've been using the word cyber attack and cybersecurity. What specifically is it that you could see 
happening? What you know? What is it that they're actually warning about in your mind? Like, what, what, how it is? Can you operationalize that a little bit for us? Yeah. Yeah. So, so really, in the past, what we've seen with the use of, um, you know, with the weaponization of cyber uh, is is twofold. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, both havoc-based attacks and uh, ransomware. Now, both of these types of attacks, when used by nation states for geopolitical means, have one aim, and that's to apply pressure and cause disruption and havoc. Um, ransomware, like we talked about, that's where you know they can get in, they can lock up your system and demand payment. And the benefit of a nation state actor using ransomware is because there is a certain amount of plausible deniability associated with the use of ransomware because a lot of the times these ransomware gangs that conduct these types of attacks um, they are backed by various nation states but those nation states historically have denied having to having anything to do with these types of attacks now havoc based attacks um, those are I think a lot more sinister um, those are specifically designed to cause disruption, cause destruction, um, and and cause general havoc. I mean, we saw with so that would be the an example of like shutting down a pipeline or shutting down know, oh, part of an electrical grid or something like that. Exactly, like disrupting a water supply, shutting down a pipeline, shutting down rail network, uh, power grids. And we've already seen, uh, Tom, we've already seen attacks like this occur as a result of this geopolitical conflict. They Mm -hmm. just haven't happened to be in the United States yet. Mm -hmm. So who wins, (laughs) right? If, if, If there is whether or not it's accountability or not or whether or not I mean, is there is there is there a way and i guess maybe i should ask that even a little more specifically where where state and local governments are concerned are the, is, is there a way to um is there a way to foresee you know what geographic area what city what type of system could be impacted or is it yeah un- unfortunately tom um you know, I, I, I've I've said this, and I've, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. You know, when mm-hmm. it comes to credit, um, cyber risk is like any other kind of disaster. The problem with a situation like this is, for example, if you're looking at a hurricane, you can take a look at like literally a map and, you know, have an understanding of what regions could be hurricane prone. But on, on a situation like this, it really is a roll of the dice. It is very difficult to gauge what organizations could come under attack. The fact of the matter is um, these nation state actors uh, spend a considerable amount of time and resources in infiltrating various systems, not necessarily to do anything, but just in case if the day comes, they have already have infiltrated those systems, know how those systems work and can take them down. That is the modus operandi of the adversaries in this situation. As far as, um, you know, where the attacks could be concentrated, I would say, you know, critical infrastructure has been a topic of conversation very much so. I know both with CISA as well as with the FBI and even Homeland Security, although Homeland Security in this latest uh, memorandum, they did expand it to include all state and local governments, which I thought was was interesting. But it is difficult. I think it just, um, it, we have, I think one thing that 
has to happen, Tom, is we have to have a little bit of a shift in thinking just as an industry in the state and local government sector. And we have to understand that, like I mentioned before, the decisions, the, po the geopolitical decisions that the United States makes has an impact on what we do. Even if, I, if, even if I'm operating a very small water system in the middle of the heartland and I just serve a population of 5,000 people or something, and, you know, in the past I thought, well, I just have to worry about my, my constituency and my ratepayers, and that's about it. But that's not the case anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, in a situation like this, with the rise of these types of cyber weapons, I could be deemed a legitimate target. And one of the other things that complicates the situation, I think that this is, you know, we talked about this last time and you have already reiterated it. And I, I'm going to mention it again, just because I think it is so important in that uh, governments and other entities outside of this country don't aren't used to a federal, state and local government uh, structure, right? So again, they um, outside Entity, whether it be entities or governments don't differentiate between the U.S. federal government, the state governments here, the county governments in the city. If they are, are planting, whether it's uh, spyware or ransomware at a school, they, they're not necessarily differentiating between that school system, the state and the federal government. And I think that's an important uh, diversifying, uh, maybe not diversifying, but important factor to keep in mind. Um, is there anything else about the geopolitical situation in Russia that we should mention or talk about before I go on to a few other specific uh, topics that I wanted to talk about? I, I think generally speaking, and uh, especially with this warning from Homeland Security, and it's not just unique to this situation we're talking about, I think mm -hmm. you know, management vigilance system monitoring is going to become even more important than it was in the past. I think it's going to be really important for uh, management and state and local government level to know the architecture of their systems, know who's coming and going and how those systems are operating and make sure they're monitoring it consistently because that's the only way to you know, effectively reduce the risk. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, the, that's a good segue into one of the other uh, kind of specific, more technical questions that I had about log for shell vulnerability and its impact on Java-based applications. I was wondering if you could update that, uh, update us on that also. Sure, sure, yeah. So Log4Shell is a specific uh, vulnerability that was discovered uh, uh, at the end of last year, in December of last year. It, it, it impacts, um, as you mentioned, a lot of Java-based applications. Mm -hmm. I think um, I've seen some discussion about it in our sector, but I think there's a lot of confusion as to what it is. Um, so there is a uh, there's there's Apache Log4j, which is the software that's used to write um, Log4j based applications for Java. Log4j itself is a specific Java language, um, but it's also a library of code for that language. And I don't want to get too technical, so I'll, I'll just keep it at that. But the vulnerability isn't necessarily with the software, it's within that library of code. And because this library of code has been very popular for a long time, there is a lot of both proprietary as well as commercial Java-based applications that incorporate 
this library of code into, into various aspects of their software. And the problem is, you know, I've, I was, at, I was at a speaking at another event and somebody asked me, well, couldn't you just update your software and the issue would be resolved? And the answer to that is, well, not really, because it isn't necessarily the software that's the problem, it's the code that's, that's used to write parts of it. And that code can't be uh, updated as easily as just you updating your windows. And that's, I think, what makes it, I thought that director of CISA uh, called it one of the worst vulnerabilities to have been discovered in the last 10 years or something like that. And the reason it's, it's so bad is because you don't know, like you could be running all kinds of applications on your systems and you would not know unless you have a really, really robust uh, a virtual asset management program, you wouldn't know whether you have log4shell vulnerability in your system or log4j uh, code in your applications or not. So when we talk about the vulnerability, what exactly would these systems be vulnerable to? Um, so essentially what, what it allows is it would allow an intruder, to a backdoor to be able to get in to an, an external interfacing application that an institution is running and mm. insert malicious code into that okay. application and through that gain access to the, to the network. Are there examples uh, either internationally or here in the US where this has been happening in the public or private sector? There is um, nothing uh, public. There is possibilities of several very high profile attacks at the end of last year and the beginning of this year being related to Log4j. But um, I can tell you European law enforcement agencies as well as American ones have, um, I think, wisely informed those who have been attacked and those who know about the vulnerability in their systems not to advertise it because it is still something that we're grappling with. We don't have a good solution for it as of yet. That was going to be my next question, if there's any, if there's been any notices or any, any memos from the government about that. Yeah, yeah. So CISA has been very active um, in dealing with the situation with Log4j. And that's part of the part of the issue is obviously like the sense this is a zero day vulnerability or a vulnerability that we don't have a real good solution for yet. The I think the guidance there, which I think is, is sound, is that not to advertise the fact that you may have this vulnerability. Some of the larger um, box software manufacturers have began to, you know, scan their software as an issue updates. But, you know, think about how many applications there are out there on the Internet that are that use Java as as their base and how many of those proprietary applications probably have log4j code in them just because it's so popular and Java was so pop popular, especially when it came to external interfacing capabilities for websites and whatnot. One of, one of the things that I was. Uh wondering about is uh, you know you mentioned uh, ransomware attacks and i was wondering if there has been an evolution of ransomware uh, uh, attacks as it relates to the supply chain and maybe even some of the supply chain issues that 
we've been seeing in the U.S. and uh, throughout the world? Yeah, so, um, you know, what with the, the supply chain style of ransomware attacks, you know, continue to become an issue. What we saw with things like SolarWinds and Excelion is now, I would say, in some ways is becoming the norm. I think cyber criminals have discovered that, you know, if you can hit a vendor and then through that vendor reach hundreds, if not thousands of other organizations and impact their operations, then you can really have a much more, much bigger uh, amount of leverage on that vendor to then be paid for, you know, whether it's restoring their services or not exposing their data, you know, because the, the, the ransomware conversation is just going in such an interesting place right now. It's a little bit scary, but interesting place right now. This uh, this problem is probably going to get worse. Uh, the sophistication of ransomware is only growing, and um, you know we saw, you know, probably one of the more uh, headline-making attacks from just about a month ago is the attacks on uh, on Kronos on Kronos Group. Uh, Kronos Group is the uh, provider of a very very popular. Uh, like HR software that is used by a variety of industry. It's very popular in the healthcare industry, but it's also used uh, for a lot of municipal governments, water providers, universities, I mean, you name it. And they got hit with a pretty bad ransomware attack right before the holidays. And, you know, they, they provide various services. But for example, one of the services that they provided was like, logging system for hours for employees so you know how much you get for your paycheck well there was a lot of paychecks that were incomplete or inconsistent right before the holidays and you know it caused a lot of people a lot of you know discomfort and and heartache i'm sure but that was a really good example of how strategic these criminal gangs can be they understand that the holidays are coming up they understand that this organization is critical to thousands of people receiving their paychecks or having holiday benefits um and they target that organization just at the time it was that it's most vulnerable and at that time when chronos got hit um the messaging from the company itself was that it could be weeks for them to even be able to function to a level that would be appropriate to the pre-attack levels so that would have been after the holidays mm-hmm. by the time that and so that's just an example of how this problem is only growing in sophistication and the attackers are definitely honing their strategic skills. Mm-hmm. So what are the solutions that uh, companies and uh, governments at the state, county and local levels have used for several years now in, in order to not necessarily minimize the vulnerability, but to minimize maybe the financial impact as they've been using cyber insurance. Sure. Uh, one of the things, you know, how has that world been evolving? Are there uh, positive, negative trends where cyber insurance is concerned? How should we be thinking about that right now? For sure. Um, so I'm sure you, as well as I, remember the attack on the city of Atlanta that started mm-hmm. all the conversation. Um, and that that attack was a real important event. It, it, what it did, one of the things it did post attack is a lot of state and local governments just, I think, really uh, 
got clued in to how much of a risk the cyber stuff can be. And a lot of them went out and bought cyber insurance. And at that time, it was very affordable. You could get, you know, pretty excellent coverage for a very low amount of money. And so it was cheap. It was a very cheap, very effective means of uh, protecting your yourself against the cyber attack and transferring that risk. Well, um, the cyber threat landscape has completely evolved since then. And what we're seeing today is a much, much more sophisticated cyber threat landscape. So insurance is not quite as effective as it used to be. No, no. And, and frankly, one of the, the, the probably the most worrying trend for our industry is the fact that, you know, insurance premiums are going up exponentially every year on cyber insurance. The amount of coverage, on the other hand, is coming down at the same time. Not to mention the fact that the insurance companies are now requiring much, much more stringent uh, security audits to even be able to provide insurance. Uh, so some of the trends from last year that I think had me kind of concerned, and I, and I published about this, mm-hmm. but that, you know, I think the industry is headed to a way where there's a lot of these commercial insurance companies that just don't really want to, um, in a lot of ways, do business with the public sector just because uh, what they believe to be deficiencies in the public sector, the amount of, like I mentioned, the amount of security certification that is needed to even be able to acquire cyber insurance is quickly becoming unaffordable for small to medium-sized issuers. And as a result, I had, an, I had a discussion with someone from the insurance side last year, and you know, I, one of the statements that he made to me that really struck with me is that um, you know, going forward, this kind of robust insurance policies that we had seen in the past for state and local governments, especially, like I said, small to medium-sized uh, local governments, would not only be um, un, uh, unaffordable in the future, but pro- would probably be unavailable, as in the institutions would uh, may not even be able to pass the security audits that the insurance companies are requiring to then even be able to purchase that insurance. So I think this is a worrying trend for the industry because of the fact that insurance became quickly became the main focus for, for defense. And now that main focus is kind of disappearing as institutions are getting priced out. Do we have an idea of the timing of this or is this happening now as we speak? I think it really accelerated with COVID. So I know I, I talk to, uh, I have, uh, you know, acquaintances who are CISOs for, for major cities, and they were saying that the security audit that they got last year completely shocked them. And the one that they got this year to be able to, um, in 2021, the one that they got in 2021 to even be able to afford that insurance was a lot more complicated than the, than the one before. And they're expecting uh, even a more stringent one this this year. And what they've seen, like I said, premiums are going up, coverage is coming down. Um, the a lot of the larger issuers that are able to do it have are really starting to think about strategies like self-insuring for specifically for cyber. Um, also for the smaller issuers, some of these state pools have stepped in to provide cyber coverage insurance 
for for the end for the for these entities specifically the like I mentioned the smaller issuers. Mm-hmm. The uh, the problem with the pool strategy though is that although the pools are affordable, the uh, the pools are just lagging behind the insurance companies. It, it's only a matter of time before that insurance also starts to go up in cost. So it's happening now. <laughs> so that's a, it is happening, happening now. Continue to happen, and and I think what this uh, this really underpins a major point that I've been saying for a long time is that cyber insurance is not a solution to your cyber risk. Mm-hmm. The only solution to your cyber risk is a really robust cyber risk strategy, and cyber conscious hygiene among your organization. That's really the the only solution. Whether we're talking about you know, log 4J, this issues with this insurance stuff, or even the geopolitical problems that we discussed, that's really the only solution. The, um, the, the cyber insurance is just the transference of risk, and all that's happening is that transference is now becoming unavailable. So institutions have to wake up to the fact that they need to start uh, getting very serious about managing their risk. Right. So one of the, th- one of the things that I regularly, over the last several months if not last year have been writing about has been related to uh, labor market issues especially where uh, state and local government are concerned i know that uh, a lot of other uh, strategists and folks have been writing about uh, the great resignation and you know what it is that's happening with people going from organization to organization some people especially in the state and local government sector uh, retiring one of the things in the cyber world that seems to be happening, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and I was wondering if you could go into this, is that there is a talent drought for folks who have the expertise in uh, cyber issues and cybersecurity. I was wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So you are you're completely correct there. We do have a uh, a drought when it comes to. Um, you know, really talented cyber professionals in the state and local government sector. I think even as a whole, as a country, last year, there was over half a million um, cybersecurity related jobs that weren't able to get filled. And that just shows the demand for this particular skill set is far uh, outpacing the supply right now, just because how quickly the risk environment is evolving. So the, the issue with that is that makes the, uh, the talent very expensive. And as a result, it's generally the private sector that's able to, you know, really afford consistently um, employing that talent. And and part of the challenge for the public sector as a whole, obviously, there's talented professionals across the state and local government industry all over the place. But aggregately, as a whole, it is much it is much, much harder today for them to compete with the private sector for talent in this specific area. Um, There is more interest, I think, among youths to pursue this career. I think people are starting to see that there may be, uh, even I I would dare say, even with some of these geopolitical stuff, people are starting to see a little bit of glamour around it uh, uh, in a way that there wasn't before, really like five, six years ago that just didn't exist. So I think, you know, hopefully... My hope is that this this situation gets resolved just because of the fact that so the supply will increase. But as of right now, that that's not the case. And as a result, 
Um, I think institutions are finding harder and harder not to just hire, but more importantly, retain the experienced talent. When well, if you're, yeah, if you're saying that one of the solutions that state and local governments need to prioritize is something that's going to require this level of expertise, it's hard, it makes it even harder if it doesn't, ex if that expertise either doesn't exist or it's so expensive that they can't uh, afford it. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, it goes back down to issuers need to take an institutional perspective to cybersecurity. Uh, one thing I always tell people is every single person you have on your system is responsible for the defense of your system. They need to be aware of the risks that those systems are facing. They need to be uh, they need to feel empowered to speak up if they themselves made a mistake or if they saw something odd happening. Um, a communication is key in cybersecurity. So and this is one of the, and this is one of the reasons why a lot of organizations are doing this internal training and ongoing training, trying to trick you into responding to emails and these types of things, right? That's exactly the case. That's exactly mm -hmm. the case. But you are right. You are right. I mean, at some point, it does go down to the technical, and when it does go down to the technical, you need people who are qualified to do it. And those people are expensive and very difficult to get right now. All right, I mean, we uh, we have talked from a big picture about the geopolitical issues happening in uh, in, in in Asia and Europe and how it could impact the U.S. We've been talking about the uh, labor market here. Uh, let's leave it here. We're gonna. I'm. Sh I have a feeling that we're gonna end up having you back shortly because there very well could be things that evolve over the next couple of weeks or months. But I want to thank you for your time today. Thanks for, uh, for talking with us. And thank you so much, Tom. It's always a pleasure to join you all. And thanks uh, a lot to those who turned in and downloaded our recording today. Uh, again, thanks for listening. For those interested, you can also see the recent Hilltop Securities economic and municipal commentary and listen to our podcasts by going to hilltopsecurities.com backslash commentary. And you can follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Again, thanks, everyone. We look forward to bringing you more color in the future related to the topics that intersect the areas of politics, finance, and public finance. Again, this has been Tom Koslick from Hilltop Securities. Thanks for listening to Hilltop Talks, a Hilltop Securities podcast where we navigate the impact of politics and finance on the financial markets. For those interested, you can view our Hilltop Securities economic and municipal commentary by visiting hilltopsecurities.com backslash municipal dash commentary and hilltopsecurities.com backslash economic dash commentary. You can also follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again, everyone, for subscribing, tuning in, and participating. We look forward to bringing you more color in the future on topics that intersect both the world of politics and finance. This has been Tom Koslick at Hilltop Securities. 
This communication is intended for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or investment advice, nor is it an offer or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any investment or other specific product or service. Financial transactions may be dependent upon many factors such as, but not limited to, interest rates, tax rates, supply, and change in laws, rules and regulations, as well as changes in credit quality and rating agency considerations. The effect of such changes in such assumptions may be material and could affect the projected results. Any outcome or result Hilltop Securities or any of its employees may have achieved on behalf of our clients in previous matters does not necessarily indicate similar results can be obtained in the future for current or potential clients. Hilltop Securities makes no claim the use of this communication will assure a successful outcome. For additional information, comments, or questions, please contact Hilltop Securities, Inc. Hilltop Securities is a wholly owned subsidiary of Hilltop Holdings, New York Stock Exchange, ticker symbol HTH. Hilltop Securities is located at 717 North Harwood Street, Dallas, Texas, 75201. Phone number 833-4-HILLTOP, H-I-L-L-T-O-P, and is a member of the New York Stock Exchange, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and the Securities Investor Protection Corporation.